The Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129 presents America This Week, a smart Catholic take on faith and culture with Father Matt Malone and Carrie Weber. Good day. You're listening to America This Week, a smart Catholic take on faith and culture. I am Carrie Weber, executive editor for America Magazine. And I'm Kevin Clark, chief correspondent, uh, sitting in for uh, Father Matt Malone, who is... uh, Traveling around the Holy Land this yeah, week. Yeah, we are uh, doing part of our pilgrimages that take readers, listeners, uh, on a little tour to a lot of the holy spots. Yes, and uh, I think you can find out more about America pilgrimages at americamagazine.org or americamedia.org. You can. If you're and so inclined. right here we offer you the uh, news analysis from the intersection of the church and the world gathered by our team, some of which are on this pilgrimage, but many of which are here, hard at work in the snowy offices of America. Well, snowy outside, the inside is warm enough. One of, the, one of those people are here today. Uh, Zach Davis. Carrie, Kevin, it's so good to be with you. We're glad to have you. That almost wow, sounded that was, sincere. That was, uh, I, I meant it. I'm really psyched to be here. You know, it's it's almost like he's done this before. <laughs> you may have heard his voice on our podcast, Jesuitical, for young, hip, lay Catholics. Well, for everybody, but it's featuring for everybody. the voices of young, hip, lay Catholics. That's right. Uh, and now we have on the line our guest for the day. So we're going to shift gears. And we have John Pfaff, who is... A professor of law at Fordham University, he's contributed to America. He's the author of Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. And he wrote on uh, this topic uh, for us at America, Why Today's Criminal Justice Reform Efforts Won't End Mass Incarceration. John Pfaff, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. We are very glad to have you. Uh, I do want to mention very briefly at the top of this interview. Uh, no, I think you, we need to devote you, a lot of time to this. You issue. may have heard of John Fav more recently for his viral tweet uh, about discovering his Apple IIe computer uh, that still works. Yeah, I really wish I'd actually started that tweet off now by saying, you know, my Apple is as old as mass incarceration and runs just the same today as it did back then. <laughs> wow. Something to like, try to stay on brand. Something. It's going to go so viral. Uh, <laughs> like but... hundreds of thousands of, of likes and responses. I've seen you written up in CNN Multiple all over the place. Reports. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's of, of all Every Apple gearhead in North America <laughs> is just churning on this particular story. Yeah, a friend of mine said she's at a restaurant, and like the waitress is talking to like the guy behind her about, you know, did you see this guy about his about his dad's computer in the attic? It's like just everywhere. <laughs> so yeah, if if you can somehow combine these two issues, like you said, that would be like pure gold for the for the topic. Really getting people uh, to engage. Uh, so if you want to learn more about um, John Pfaff's dad's computer, you can go to his Twitter <laughs> feed. But for now, we're going to talk about this mass incarceration issue. Um, and it's, you know, I, it's really fascinating the way that you uh, are able to break down this issue and kind of dispel a lot of assumptions that people have, uh, a lot of stereotypes, just some general statistics that you offer on any given day. About 1.5 million people are in state or federal prisons, 750,000 in county jails, 4.5 million on probation or parole. And over the course of the year, over 600,000 people enter prison. Um, it's staggering, staggering numbers. Um, And as you point out, it's much higher than most of the countries that we generally like to uh, uh, ally ourselves with, um, who that do have similar uh, crime rates and even lower homicide rates. What what is what is the cause of that differential? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, and to be clear, it's not just that we're higher than our, our allies. We're higher than anyone else in the world. Uh, no one right. else has an incarceration rate like ours. It's just that we're oftentimes five to ten times higher than what our, our allied countries are, are like. Um, and John, can you talk about real quick, who are we comparable to? I think this will shock people to, to hear. Cuba, Russia, Kazakhstan, um, China, El Salvador. I believe. No, China's actually way, way down on the list. They're oh, about really? one-seventh, one-eighth of, of, of our rate. Uh, it's really very repressive regimes that are what we're closest to um, at all. I guess it, China it, just puts like a million people into a, a camp, though, so it's kind of hard to associate them with the formal incarceration. Right, and I, I think also, I mean, there, lots of times numbers are hard to come by, but I think even their absolute number is, is officially Below slightly ours. lower than ours. Wow. Um, but then... There are some bureaucratic issues about, you know, they classify some people as not being in prison who are. Um, but I think even if you bring all those people in, their rate is still going to be much lower, much lower than ours. Um, so it's not a myth that we incarcerate people at very high rates. No, no, no. That, that, that's unavoidably and, and depressingly true. It's, it's more that the factors we tend to try to use to explain how we got here, they're not wrong, but they're less important than other issues. And unfortunately, they tend to distract us from the things that, that really matter. So what are some of the things that people tend to uh, pin this on? Right. So whenever I, I meet someone at a party and I say I've spent the past you know, 20 years trying to understand mass incarceration, they always kind of Sound give Sound like this, a great party guest, John. I, oh, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm riveting. Uh, Stick to the you, computer talk, maybe. <laughs> I'll have people that, I get people depressed within a matter of minutes. Um, you know, they, they sort of give me this look like, oh, like, why are you spending all this time? We all just know it's the war on drugs, right? Everyone's in mm. prison for these drug sentences. Um, and the fact is, is as of sort of today... About 15% of all people are in prison for drugs, one five, not, not 50, which is what people tend to think. And a majority of people in prison, at least in, in state prisons that hold almost all the prisoners, a majority are in for violence. Um, and so, you know, if we really want to change what we punish people for, we have to think about how we punish violence. Yet, in a, in a survey done a couple of years ago, a majority of Americans, broken down by ideology, liberal, moderate, or conservative, in all three categories, a majority said they were not willing to change how we punish violence, even for people who don't pose any real risk of reoffending. Right? We've convinced ourselves that everyone's in prison on, on these drug offenses, and we can do it sort of easily looking at drug cases, but we really actually have to ask these really hard questions about how we should go about punishing, punishing violence. Uh, and the fact is, like, almost no one is in prison for long periods of time for drugs at all. They're all short sentences, and all the really long sentences are for murder, aggravated assault, rape. Um, and yet every time we expand parole options for people, uh, we always exclude violent crimes from, from expanded parole chances, right? So everyone who's in prison for a long period of time is in for violence, and then we say we're, we're, we're going to cut sentences except for violent crimes because we're convinced – we can just focus on drug cases. So the net effect of that is that, that we don't actually end up reducing our incarceration rate very much. No, not so, nearly as much as people hope. So this re relates to um, a law that was signed into or that was passed sort of you, you, uh, with a lot of bipartisan support at the end of last year, the First Step Act. What was that and what, what is the effect that's going to have? Right. So the first thing you realize is that the First Step Act applies solely to the federal prison system. And the federal prison system only holds about 10 percent of all prisoners in the country. Right, so it got this tremendous amount of attention. Um, like pretty much any time someone so much as muttered the word first step, the media would cover what was happening. But it's really not that big a law. I mean, if you're in the federal system, it's going to make life better for people in the federal system. But that's a relatively small player in this. And the majority um, are in the state system? In the state system, yeah. About 90% are in the states and about 10% are in, in the feds. 
Um, and so what the First Step Act tried to do was it tried to sort of make it easier for people to be released early for drug offenses in the federal system, uh, try to improve some sort of uh, sort of sort of some of the, the way we, we treat prisoners. Um, so some of the things are good, but it's depressing that we have to pass a law like it, it made it illegal to shackle women prisoners during childbirth, um, which is a problem we have all across the country. It's like how dehumanizing do you have to view someone to shackle them to a table to the to the bed while they're delivering a baby? Like what 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 do you think they're going to do uh, right, while giving right. birth? As, yeah, because um, giving birth is not stressful enough on its own. Right, and, it's, and it also, I mean, not this is not stressful enough on its own. Not only is the woman clearly incapacitated, but what mother would jeopardize her child by trying to run away in a secure prison while giving birth? Right. And so the fact right. that you feel compelled to shackle her shows that you don't really view her as a human, or you view her as some sort of animal who's going to try to escape from this cage. And so you, you chain her to a table while she's giving birth. Sometimes they chain them to the to the bed after they deliver via C-section. Uh, I mean, they, they, we just treat people in horrible, horrible ways. Um, uh, John, you mentioned uh, you know the, what fixing this is going to require a state level fix. That sounds uh, you know terrifically complex to me. Are, are states sort of uniformly? terrible in, on incarceration? Are some states standouts in, in bad policy and are some states uh, standouts in good policy? You know, do we have any models to look at for what you refer to as de- the decarceration effort? Yeah. I mean, the states aren't uniformly bad. They're, they're all bad. They're just all bad in different ways. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Yeah. So there's no, there's no sort of one simple fix. Every state sort of got here through, through different problems and different political arrangements. Um, I mean, in many ways, the state that has sort of done the most in recent years is, is California. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. so, so for people who don't know sort of the basic trajectory of American incarceration, prison populations were flat and stable from around 1920 until around 1975 or so. And from 1975 to 2010, they, the, the prison, number of people in prison rose every single year. So about 35 years of steady, unrelenting growth. Um, and it, they grew in all 50 states. Every state saw their prison populations rise to one degree or another. Since 2010, we've seen about an 8 or 9 or 10% decline. Um, but that's only about half the states that we've seen this drop. And about half of that drop nationwide is just the state of California. Yeah, and California had a giant uh, fiscal crisis not too long ago. Is, is that the driver in, in, in decarceration is when states finally come to the conclusion they can't afford the giant uh, the prison industry they've, they've surrounded themselves with? It's not really because, for all, again, this is one of the things where sort of for all of our talk about how much we spend on prisons, prison budgets come to about 3 to 4% of state budgets. Right. They're, they're not this huge fiscal drain. And since 2008, we've kind of used this rhetoric of, you know, we need to regulate our budgets and we can cut prisons because we have to. But that's kind of political smokescreen, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, they're not, you're not going to save a lot by cutting back on, on prison spending. So it's um, still dodging to you the sort of the central problem. Right. So in California's case, what happened is their prison conditions got so bad um, that they admitted that there were about 60 or so preventable deaths every year due wow. to inadequate medical and mental health care. Right? And that's at a time when we were executing about 30 people a year nationwide. California admitted they were killing 60 people every year due to overcrowding, um, which is sort of in many ways sort of the real death penalty in the United States is not the, the execution chamber, but prison conditions that, that lead to preventable and avoidable deaths. Um, and so California found itself under court oversight that demanded it cut its prison population. Uh, and so what California did that no other state has done is they actually 
it's one of these like they address one of these like hyper technical issues that's incredibly boring to talk about but matters quite a lot. Um, and so the way our system is very broken apart, we have like nineteen thousand police departments, two thousand DA departments, fifty state departments of corrections, and they're all different jurisdictions. So the prosecutors, the people who decide do you go to prison or not, they're county officials and they're elected and paid for by the county. But prisons are run and paid for by the state. So if you're a county DA and you send someone to prison, you don't have to pay for that. Right? Someone yeah. else's budget picks it up. It's free. In fact, it's actually politically safer to send them to prison. And in fact, if you send them to jail or probation, the things that keep them closer to home, that is a county expense. So it's actually cheaper to send them to prison with a serious Give them a harder sense. Right. And I don't know many uh, state DAs who are going to run on a campaign promise of, of being softer on crime. Right. I mean, we're seeing a move towards like smarter approaches, but but they're they're rare. They're rare. Um, and so what California did is they actually have forced the counties to pay for a large number of the people they're trying to send to state prison. Um, it's an incredibly complicated law. Other states have tried to follow it and, and, and have failed. Um, so California is something very, very unique and idiosyncratic that kind of addressed one of these really like technical issues, like who pays for what, which is beyond, you know, boring to talk about. Uh, but it's, it's like these really subtle defects that permeate the system uh, and that sort of constantly push us in these increasingly punitive directions. Right. And of finance, financial matters are often what ends up driving decisions in politics and in this at the state and national level in the end form. So, John, you mentioned this a little bit before um, the first half, uh, in the first half of the show, talking about changing the way we deal with the criminal justice system involves how we address violence in our society. Um, one of the the stories that you bring up in the article here is um, about uh, the Willie Horton effect, which was a man serving time for homicide in Massachusetts. Uh, in 1986, he ran off from this furlough program. Uh, where in, that allowed inmates to visit with their family uh, and ended up committing a violent rape and assault in Maryland. And this story has really shaped how people felt about programs that were otherwise, you know, n- literally 99% successful. So how do we combat um, individual stories that are very powerful and often tragic uh, with the reality of what is needed to and what actually works in dealing with violence? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very difficult question to resolve, and the Horton effect is it's, it's a, it's a problem that just permeates every aspect of our, of our criminal justice system. Uh, and I think one thing worth noting is I think one reason why we're so punitive is that we're the only country in the world that, is, that elects as prosecutors, the only country in the world that elects as judges, uh, and one of the only countries that's the only one that has parole boards who are not part of an independent judiciary, right? So our criminal justice actors are much more sensitive to sort of what the voters are going to be care about that day. And the voters care about crime, but they don't pay close attention, right? So they get, they're easily swayed by that one shocking story. Uh, I think the problem we have, and so I think there, there are lots of different ways to, to go about addressing the Willie Horton effect. And I think one approach is to try to, I think, get things as local as possible in terms of decision-making, right? So, you know, crime is very, very geographically concentrated, not just like city versus rural, but even within a city, even within a neighborhood, it's very concentrated. Um, and the people in those areas... You know, they understand the effect of being too lenient, right? They know when someone comes out too soon and commits a crime, it's their neighbor that gets victimized. But they also understand the cost of being too severe, right? Because it's their brother or uncle or nephew or father or son who is in prison for four years or five years or 10 years, and they know he didn't need to suffer that, right? And, and when you allow sort of 
people who are sort of not all that involved in crime to have a large say in what happens. Um, you know, people who are afraid of crime, but it's not their brother, not their uncle, no one they really know who's being affected. That tends to encourage just being severe because we understand the, the, the risk of crime. We don't really care about the risk of being too harsh because it's not anyone we know or, or care about. Um, and unfortunately, you know, our, our history of racism and redlining play a huge role in this and that we've concentrated minority economic and social disadvantage in these very dense urban areas um, and then give sort of the more suburban white voters a tremendous say in what happens. Um, and so that they sort of are very afraid of that one bad crime, but indifferent to that one unnecessary punishment. Um, John, now you've mentioned that it, it is not a myth that incarceration rates are astronomical in this country. Uh, now, someone might say, though, that um, as incarceration rates have gone up, uh, crime rates have gone down. That's something that uh, people um, on both sides of the aisle like to talk about. So wouldn't someone logically say that the, the reason the crime rate is down is because we're uh, – we have a declining, uh, or we have a high incarceration rate? Right. So, so two responses to that. One is that disentangling that causal story empirically is actually quite difficult to do. That, that simple correlation it can be very, very misleading. And, and the most reliable studies that, that, that have shown sort of two, two competing effects. One is that cur- currently speaking, at a time when crime is low and prison is high, the benefit of each additional prisoner at this point is probably a net negative. Right, the cost of setting in the prison, certainly the social and humanitarian costs of setting the prison, outstrip any sort of crime reduction benefit. Um, if you go back to the 70s and 80s, when crime was high and prisons were low, the data does suggest that prison, in a sense, worked, right? and that perhaps as much of a third of the drop in crime we've seen since 1990 has been due to larger prison populations. However, I think the really important caveat is that we could have achieved that same reduction at much lower social cost have we done a whole host of other things besides prison, right? So I, the analogy I like to think of is, you, know, you get an infection on your finger uh, and you cut off your arm. You, you stopped the spread of the infection, right? Your, your amputation worked, right? But maybe if you tried an antibiotic first, you could have gotten that same elimination of the disease at, at a far smaller cost to yourself, right? And prison's kind of like chopping off your arm. It's an incredibly blunt, brutal way to solve a problem that could have been better solved to the same degree at, at a much lower Certainly, perhaps financial cost, but certainly at a much lower humanitarian and, and social cost. Well, it's often a temporary fix in a sense. It puts somebody out of uh, society for a time. But you write that a lot of studies show that uh, it doesn't really deter crime in the long run, that they're not very effective at rehabilitating folks who are in there, and that once they, a lot of uh, the people come out, they are at an increased risk of offending again. Right. And so studies have suggested that sort of the net impact of prison in the long run is, is close to zero, um, right? That there's no real deterrence. And whatever you get from keeping them locked up while they're in prison is mostly offset by the greater risk of, of reoffense when they get released from prison. Um, that our prisons are, our prisons at least, are very awful places to put someone and generally make things far worse. Um, and in fact, studies have shown that we interview victims. Uh, they generally don't favor more prisons. They want something that's more rehabilitative, more reintegrative, something that sort of helps sort of restore the community rather than sort of just brutally punish the person who, who committed the crime. Yeah, because victims are often just that's the end of the process for them because, uh, you know, the perpetrators arrested and sent, sent to jail and their um, their victimization, their violation is left unaddressed or unresolved. And, uh, you know, the, the key is thrown away for the, the perpetrator and then we move on. Right. And in fact, even just the line between victim and, and victimizer is not nearly as clear as most of our discussions 
suggest, right? Oftentimes, someone can be a victim one day and a victimizer the next day. Oftentimes, they are the victimizer because of pre- previous victimization, right? They themselves are victimized. That, that harm is never really fully addressed. And because of the emotional trauma that causes, that leads to behavioral problems down the line that causes them to be the victimizer. And we'd rather focus on fixing that initial trauma rather than just punishing the, the offender for the sake of punishment, we could actually be a much more effective and much more humane way to, to respond to crime. John, can I just ask very bluntly, do we even need prisons then? So there are certainly people who, who argue that we don't. Um, I'm not, I, I don't think I consider myself to be a prison abolitionist. I think I, I would consider myself these days a prison massive reductionist. Um, there, there might be some cases where, you know, a more public health approach just might not work for certain people. There, there are people in prison who admit the fact that they perhaps needed to go to prison for some period of time as sort of a, a necessary wake-up call, but not with sort of the regularity as you do it, the severity as you do it. I think also it depends on what our prisons look like. I mean, our prisons, certainly compared to European prisons, are profoundly horrible places. Yeah. Right? You know, so well, we, we just we, had the instance here in Brooklyn where the, the federal lockup was without heat during some of the coldest days in, in history right. uh, here in New York. Uh, and yet if you look at like... I mean, so this is sort of the, the complete opposite of the scale. But if you go to Holden Prison, which is Finland's maximum security ah, prison. Ah, Finland. Right? It looks like an Ikea. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, these people convicted of murder and their, oh, their cells have like – That could be a human rights violation. But, but, the, the but they work. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, right. But no, no the, the prisons, the walls don't have, have locks and the doors open. They have the private bathrooms. Uh, they don't have bars over the windows. They, they work in – even in places like Germany that aren't quite as progressive, they work in factories – uh, where they get paid at least the national minimum wage. They have, you know... So amenities. you treat people like human beings and yeah. they come out of incarceration acting like human beings? Exactly, right? I mean, that, that's exactly the problem. And, you know, I spend a lot of my time focusing on, you know, what are the policy changes that we need to do to, to fix this? But, you know, in the end, it's, this is not really fully a policy failure. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow, uh, she actually resigned from Ohio State as a law professor, and she's now at Union Theological Seminary, and she's argued the fact that, you know, this is a spiritual crisis, not really a legal crisis, and that the solution is not going to come from the law, it has to come from someplace else. And, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't have new Jim Crow money to quit law school, teach at law school at this point, uh, but, but I'm profoundly sympathetic to where she's coming from, that, you know, at the root of all of this is just a, a deep and, and abiding willingness to dehumanize the people in the system and to treat them, therefore, as less than human. Where, where does that come from? Is it the sense of, like, retributive justice? Like, you, you did the crime, and therefore something should happen to you because you did this thing. Right. I mean, compared to Europe, we've always been a much more sort of punitive, harsher country. Uh, there's this theory, the fact that, you know, in sort of the, the medieval and, and Renaissance period, the rich got punished one way and the poor got punished another way. And as, you, as, sort of, as cultures democratized, Europe sort of opted to punish everyone like the nobles, and America opted to punish everyone like the peasants. Right? So we <laughs> well, had except, this, the, except the elite here can still skate out of prison when they, they, they slathered the process with enough money. If they're lucky, right? Yes. I mean, you can never get rid of class altogether. But once, once you cross that line, you know, once you get punished, we're going to treat you much more brutally than, than well. You sort of always want to level down, treat everyone as bad as possible. Right? You see that anytime someone gets a break, right? You know, so like when, when Harvey Weinstein was able to walk into the police office post bail and walk back out, everyone got really angry saying, you know, a young black man convicted of a much, different, much lower crime never could have done that. Completely true. And our response, the response was always along the lines of, why aren't we punishing Weinstein the same way, 
right? And my response is, no, I, I want the young black kid to get the same treatment Weinstein got, right? Treat everyone better, not everyone worse. But our instinct is always to want to like level down rather than rather than, than, than level up. How do we make that shift as a society? I mean, that sound, that's a pretty big shift at the core of what a lot of people believe in a sense. Well, and a lot of people are more comfortable with it for, as John was saying, nonviolent crimes. But for some of the worst cases, I think people are really uneasy with the way, the way you're talking, John. They are. Um, I think also, though, at the end, you, we can never get around the connection this has to sort of America's continuing torture relationship with race, right? That we tend to you know the system is disproportionately minority. And in fact, studies have shown that even white people who get into the system, we tend to use language that sort of strips them of their whiteness. We sort of view them as almost being black and therefore allow us to treat them worse, right? And, and how do you overcome sort of the deep abiding legacy that, that you know, racism plays in our society? I, I don't know how you overcome that. Uh, I mean, I think one way you do it is, again, to the extent you can allow sort of the people closest to the problem to address the problem the most themselves, you sort of take, you know, stop allowing white suburbanites to dictate policy in you no know, minority heavy urban areas, right? Like it's maybe we can't solve it. Maybe we just need to sort of remove the people who are least sensitive to the issue uh, or, or minimize the impact they have on decision making. Um, but it's but it's it's not it's, on the one hand, right? We need to completely, it feels like we need to completely change our culture. On the other hand, there's sort of these two anecdotes about the Willie Horton effect not happening that I find really striking, right? So in, in the case of actually Willie Horton, you know, you had this one man escape, you know, run away from a program, commit a horrible crime, and because of the sensations around that one crime, people kind of felt compelled to shut down their furlough program. Right. John, just to interrupt you quickly, we have about a minute left, so. Okay, so, and so, but several years before, in another state, that same thing had happened, and the governor refused to back down. He wouldn't cut the program, he said the program was incredibly important, and that was Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California, right, who was definitely not a progressive. Noted liberal. Um, right, exactly. And there's another case of a furlough program where they released like one-third of the prisoners, and 15 didn't come back, and everyone said, oh, this is fine, no, this is okay, the program's important, and that was Jim Crow, Mississippi in 1935, right? So there are examples from our, our past where we've, we've been able to look past this. We just need to figure out how to do that today. Thank you so much, John. We really appreciate having you on the show.